So I thought I'd start by uh, introducing myself. Uh, my name is uh, Lori Burgess, and uh, currently I teach at uh, Cornerstone University as an associate professor. I'm also the division chair, so part of my job is administration, but I also still get to be in the classroom. I teach educational psychology, and so uh, I teach um, a lot about learning theories on learning, motivation, classroom management is part of that. Uh, also part of my background that led me to interest in what I'm going to be talking about today is um, the study on uh, the scholarship, rather, of teaching and learning. And so I had been uh, doing faculty development at Cornerstone, um, working with uh, faculty on specifically their teaching and learning. Um, as many of you probably know that in higher education, uh, you can get a, uh, a job teaching without having the, uh, the preparation of teaching. And uh, so fortunately, higher ed is caught up in that regard. And now there are centers for uh, teaching and learning to support uh, faculty and professors as they uh, understand the whole child and student-centered learning. So um, part, as part of that, I got to uh, work with several faculty, but also dive into this scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, prior to working at Cornerstone, I taught at uh, the Potter's House Christian School, and I taught um, language arts and social studies, and um, really enjoyed my time. Um, and again, it was really an honor to be able to uh, teach in a Christian uh, school. It's an honor now teaching at Cornerstone uh, and being able to talk about our faith and um, start class with prayer. And so anyway, that, um, that's a little bit about me. Uh, that's my family uh, up there. Um, I have all three kids in college right now. Uh, they're at Cornerstone, and I was sharing with some friends that uh, as freshmen, we have twins. So the two on the ends are, are twins. This is their first semester in college, and I think they're having a little too much fun. <laughs> so, but I get to see them on campus. So. All right, next slide. So I, I, start, I wanted to start and acknowledge um, that one of the best prizes, I'll just read this far and away, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And uh, teaching is a high calling. And my guess is that you didn't go into teaching because it's easy. And you don't stay in teaching because it's easy. Um, but especially as Christian educators, uh, when we're exactly where God wants us to be, um, and we know that we're doing a calling, that is the work worth doing. So just want to... Um, Acknowledge that, uh, and especially as uh, the last few years have been challenging uh, in P12 settings, higher ed, but especially thinking about um, those of you who are in the trenches. And so, all right, next slide. Slide. Okay, so let's go back to this: uh, the why behind effective teaching. Um, Joshua Ayler, uh, about a year ago, I ran into an interview uh, with him, and uh, he wrote this book, How Humans Learn, and a lot of the research that he did 
to create a framework on understanding learning is based on uh, developmental psychology, educational psychology, uh, neuroscience, science, and it all came together in what I'm going to review with you today on these fundamentals of learning. But what was interesting to me is that when I heard the interview with him, I didn't realize that he actually uh, was talking specifically about higher education. You'll see that uh, the subtitle is The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching. Um, I, I'm going to suggest that a lot of what he talks about and these ideas that I'm going to share are very applicable across the board, not only in higher education, but particularly to understanding students' learning uh, developmentally uh, and across the board in, in P-12 education. Uh, I would encourage you to either listen to him, their podcast, uh, read this book. I, I'm not sure he's a believer. I don't agree with all of his claims, um, but I do think that we can look at his framework from a Christian lens and get something out of it. All right. So I want you to think about how you learn best, and I'd like you to turn to at least one other person and think about that. How do you learn best? Go ahead and take a few minutes to think about that with someone else. Teaching 
history for years, uh, you probably don't even have to think about uh, what you're saying. That content comes out quite fluently. All right, is there anyone else that had anything different? What else did you say about how you learn best? Yeah, go ahead. When I'm given the opportunity to do it the way I want to do it. How and what would be your preference? How you want to do it? It would depend on the what I'm learning. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to tell you what that makes me think of. There are times that I need to be by myself, uninterrupted, where I think the best, and then I can process information really well. And However, it surprises me when I hear that people can study in front of a TV or with music on... But some people can do that. That's not what's best for me. Is that, um, does that go along with what you were thinking? Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, I thought I saw another hand. Go ahead. I just need time to process what I've learned. The quick, here's all the information download. If yeah. I don't have time to organize it, process it, think it through, um, then I haven't really fully learned it. Yeah. So deep learning requires that think time and processing but some of us process at a different speed. I always remember, I, like in school, when it was like, there's a right or wrong answer, and then everyone else is like that, and I'm like, all right, if you gave me like a few more seconds, I could give you the answer, but I need a few more seconds. And I might be able to give you a quick answer, Yeah. but I'm not gonna be confident in it, Sure. and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be able to recall it, think it through, and apply it later. Yeah. If I don't have that time to process. Yes. Yeah. Processing is very important in the back. The environment has makes a big difference. And there, depending on what it is that I'm trying to glean, some yeah. things I want to be absolutely secluded. Yeah. Other things, depending on what the, the subject matter is, I like to have people around me to process with. It just depends on what the subject matter is. Yes. That's so interesting. The content matters. The environment is significant for processing that information. Because there are times where when we're collaborating with others, then we're learning from each other. And But there are the other times where it's like, nope, I need to be alone to process this. All right, very good. Okay, uh, next slide, please. All right, this is the framework uh, that Josh Eiler um, basically came up with, and he suggested that these fi uh, five elements are fundamental to learning. So curiosity, sociality, emotion, authenticity, and failure. Uh, one thing that I've been realizing is uh, as I study theories on learning, motivation, that there are basically different words for the same ideas. And so some of what we'll talk about today, um, he's repackaged, um, but still uh, worth mentioning. And uh, there's some uh, vocabulary that may be new or uh, familiar. All right, let's go to curiosity. So, curiosity. Um, children are naturally curious. I would suggest that God created us to be curious beings. 
And uh, Susan Engel has done a lot of research on the idea of behind curiosity. Um, and she even suggests that curiosity is the engine of intellectual development. And I want to share the uh, study that she did. So when she went into this study, she really wanted to look at the kinds of curiosity. And so she did a qualitative study by going into classrooms over three months, two hours in each classroom, kindergarten and fifth grade, really to find out these types of curiosity. And one of the things that she claimed or recognized is that children are curious. If you've ever spent time with a toddler or a four-year-old, you probably have heard the why question. Or the question, what, such and such, and then why. And so she thought, okay, well, what happens when kids get into school? So what what does curiosity look like? What she found out was that the instances of curious curiosity episodes were so limited in fifth grade. In fact, in kindergarten, she said there were two to five curiosity episodes where kids were asking these curious questions, inquiry type questions, in a two hour period, two to five. She found that in fifth grade, there were zero to two. So, she and Josh, I'll go back to Josh Eiler, suggests that perhaps curiosity is not a top priority in education. But we are wired to be curious. And so, Eiler suggests that we encourage curiosity in the classroom. So I teach, um, so I teach pre-service teachers and maybe you remember learning about lesson planning <laughs> and how fun that is. And we still draw upon Madeline Hunter, if that sounds familiar. And that her lesson plan design goes way back. But she had something right. If you remember anticipatory set, the hook. Yeah, okay, some people are like, oh. But I think she got something right there that you do need to hook or spark that curiosity uh, to get students' attention. So how do we do that? Um, We should probably design activities that draws on curiosity. Um, And then Josh Eiler came up with this term I had not heard of before, but talked about uh, over-directed instruction. So, when and, and this is going back to direct instruction. Often, direct instruction is especially important when we're introducing a topic. And so, in higher ed, lecture gets a bad rap. However... The other part of lecture, if it can be engaging, is that you can get a lot of information out in a shorter amount of time. 
rather than, okay, think pair share, okay, discuss as group, which there is definitely benefit to that. We'll talk about that. Um, but we need to be mindful of the length of that direct instruction and consider the other factors that may be involved in uh, over-directed instruction, that we're relying too much on being uh, the one professing the information. Um, and then another reminder is really with, within this concept of curiosity, ultimately, when we think about student-centered learning or a student-centered classroom, we want our students to be autonomous and basically self-directed learners. And Eiler would suggest that curiosity um, is very uh, foundational, fundamental to becoming a self-directed learner. Next slide. All right, sociality. Um, I would first like to make the claim that God made us to be social beings, uh, that we are meant to be in community, um, especially after the last couple years. Um, I think this is even more significant uh, for those of us who felt isolated. There are studies on isolation that suggest that uh, not only is there mental uh, ramifications, that uh, isolation impacts our mental health, but isolation also can have physic a physical impact. Uh, that people, in uh, these are studies outside of uh, COVID, but people that were isolated actually physically got sick. So that really suggests that the importance of being in community and this idea of so sociality. Um, we're, uh, I think environment, we, we started talking about environment as an impact on learning, and I want to go back to that because environment has, as we noted, a significant impact on development, cognitive development, on our learning. But when I say environment, part of me is talking about our physical environment, but the other part is those, the importance of social interactions. And that's basically um, the idea behind sociality. Um, one of the, uh, the actions that is important then when we consider uh, sociality is creating safe environments um, and environments where students can collaborate safely, that they can risk, take, uh, take risks with their learning. And I would like to suggest that 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 makes it very important then as teachers how we um, set the stage um, and the, like even the tone of the classroom. Um, my, I did my dissertation on creating community in the college classroom, but it really came from um, what I recognize needs the needs were in a middle school classroom when I, when I taught middle school. Um, the importance of creating a safe space um, so that students, you know, maybe if they felt safe, 
they would be willing to take a risk, be vulnerable, put themselves out there, and feel cared for. Um, so what I found, uh, interestingly enough, in this, again, I did uh, my research in higher education, but I think it's still important uh, in, in all learning, uh, is that students, when they felt, okay, hang on. So when instructors had a sense of community, and that, that means sense of belonging, uh, sense of learning, because that's part of community in uh, a, a classroom. When instructors felt a high sense of community, students' perceptions of their learning increased. They felt like they had a higher sense of learning which is a very interesting correlation, and it wasn't one that I expected. Um, but it does go to suggest that when we care about our students, like the pedagogy of care, that's a, a term that I ran into. So I care about my students as whole people, everything about them, but they know that I care about them as learners. That's the pedagogy of care. And so if I can create that safe environment and I can set the stage with the expectations that we're going to treat each other with respect, that that can allow students to take risks. All right. Um, not yet. I want to highlight uh, this picture a minute. Um, I don't know if you, well, how your students feel about group work. Um, but my students, when they hear group work, feel nauseous? <laughs> or do you remember being in college where you're like, all right, this is the ideal, and then you're like, all right, I'll take section A, you do B, you do C, and then we'll get back together? All right. So this maybe is the ideal, but we know what the reality is. And so uh, Eiler, and this is based just on good practice, uh, suggests that maybe we ask more open-ended questions. And so if uh, in educational psychology, I'll say, well, I put them in table groups so that they're, it's collaborative learning. But I'll give like a, a low stakes, just open-ended question and so that they can discuss and learn from each other. Uh, another thing that I think is worth mentioning, and I kind of sense that I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but I do want to highlight um, what I've noticed sometimes in classrooms when teachers ask a question that has a right or wrong answer, and this is usually what happens. Students don't make eye contact. They look down, don't want to be called on. And then there's usually that one kid that takes it for the team. They're like, all right, all right, I'll answer the question. One of the things about maybe discussing in that group before sharing out in a whole class is you get to bounce off an idea with someone else and then like, oh, okay. They didn't seem, that, seem like they thought that was it. Stupid. Now I'm willing to take one or answer in front of the whole class. So that's a way that I think we can uh, create a safer environment by uh, creating those low stakes, 
uh, opportunities and maybe not going for the right or wrong questions, but open-ended questions, which also promotes deeper learning uh, and then as we're uh, learning with others. Okay, uh, right. Let's move <coughs> to the next slide. Emotion. Okay. Um, so first, the claim I'd like to make is that uh, emotion cannot be separated from learning or thinking, that they are connected. Um, and uh, that our thinking and our feeling work together. Um, when, I, when I talk about uh, creating environments that are safe in, in my Ed Psych class, uh, I ask students to think about the students that they will have and that basically your students, their full-time job is to be a student, right? They go to school full-time. Now, can you imagine being a failure at your job every single day? Yeah, emotion is definitely tied to learning. So I'm going to share a story about uh, one of my kiddos, and this is just um, ah, something that I've been, I think about, reflect on often especially as a teacher and an educator. Um, so she had challenges reading when she was younger. And it's one of the twins, so girl-boy twins. And she got to, or she was pulled out to get reading instruction. Well, it wasn't until she was in fourth grade that she realized she was, at first she was like, yeah, this is cool. The teacher that took her out had candy. And then the, the guy, the other boy that was in there with her, she's like, it's super fun. Well, then she realized, uh, I'm being taken out because uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not reading well. Um, and then, of course, her twin, is his ability to process information is quick. He knows what to attend to. He's very auditory, and she also now, we know, has some attention difficulties. So she, and then she, uh, she was able to succeed in, in uh, reading at grade level, and by the time she went to middle school and went to a different middle school, her scores suggested that she was reading informational text at the higher level. To this day, she has very low self-efficacy. So she does not feel confident in herself as a learner. And she will get down on herself. Like, they, the kids had uh, their fall break this weekend, and she's like, Mom, you know, I studied for that math test, and I really worked hard. And then my classmates were like, yeah, I didn't study. And then she failed, and they didn't. Yeah, there's emotion definitely tied to learning. I, I, I want to highlight that, um, and again, I feel like I'm preaching to the crowd, but at the same time, I think it's uh, important that we recognize that. Um, so, academic stress, 
definitely leads to mental health. There has been research that's been done on that. And one of the uh, things they found in this research is that it wasn't just a correlation, it was causation. Very significant. That when students are stressed academically, it is a, has a direct impact on their mental health. So, um, what can we do? Well, I would suggest that students will work harder when you invest in them. It's always so interesting to me when I ask even college students, like, how do you, you know, how do you learn best? You know, I mean, they are act- they actually can articulate when someone, when I know someone cares about me. I'm like, okay, I don't think I had that insight. I thought it was cool that my English teacher liked me, but they can articulate that. And I think some of you are like, yep, yep, I know that already. So I want to reiterate how important it is that we're caring for our students, that we invest in them, that pedagogical care. Um, And I would suggest that uh, the single most effective strategy is that pedagogy of care. Uh, I got to be on a, a council or something for Michigan Department of Education asked uh, people that were deans or directors of teacher ed um, programs across Michigan to invite a principal to come to this uh, session that we had. And the session listed these 19 core teaching practices that are research-based, evidence that they're highly effective, And MDE basically said, all right, we want to know which ones you think are most important to teach to pre-service teachers. And so we went through the system, uh, and there were probably uh, 40 or 50 of us, and they let us vote for our top five. And then they did it in this clever way. They're like, okay, but then you can have three votes if you really, really like one. (laughs) So some of the practices, high leverage practices, are like leading a group discussion, um, eliciting and interpreting student thinking, uh, small group work, uh, culturally relevant, I'm not sure how that was, but understanding students' backgrounds as it uh, impacts their learning, something like that. So what we found was the number one, by far, most important high leverage practice or core teaching practice was building respectful relationships. And and not only did it get the most votes, but if we did a study, we would have found that there was a a significantly significant trying to say. It was statistically significant <laughs> that that was the top uh, uh, high leverage practice and probably with a very high effect size, which means, yeah, we thought that was really important. So building respectful relationships and then how do we do that? Um, what's interesting to me is uh, I just assume by being in a middle school classroom that you knew to learn your students' names. 
Um, so when I, when I was working with faculty, that was one thing they didn't know, which is so interesting to me. Um, but learning names and using names can be very intimate. I mean, it's very important to use our students' names. But then also having those um, the short conversations. You know, you know how some students are like, okay, they could like pull you aside for an hour. You know, and then you're like, oh, here, you know, I've got a job to do. I do need to teach. Um, so how do you get out of the you need extra exit strategies? Well, it's still important to have those short conversations. And my guess is some of you do that. Oh, I'm thankful. Uh, some of you do that when students walk in. You say hi to them. Use their name. You can do the quick, you know, so how did your game go yesterday or, or things like that. Um, those are all very uh, important in uh, in this pedagogy of care. Um, another another uh, action, I've, I've organized my thoughts for each of these so I could remember uh, as, what's the action item? Uh, another action item is uh, research suggests that enthusiasm is very contagious uh, in the classroom. And um, I'm not going to perhaps call out this person, but um, two of my kids had uh, a teacher that happens to be in this room that taught history and his passion first content knowledge was exceptional and I know that because my best friend went on a trip with him but second my kids recognized how excited he was about history Gettysburg the things that they learned it was contagious um, so that enthusiasm is important. I also like to think about it this way. Uh, have you ever been in a classroom where you're like, okay, you're clearly not into this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So enthusiasm about uh, what we're teaching, and that can be contagious. All right, let's move to the next one. Authenticity. So when I first saw this, I thought, am I being real with my kids? No, it's actually not that. It's uh, authentic environment, real life learning versus inauthentic. Uh, so it'd be like the difference between reading about riding a bike and getting on a bike and riding a bike. That, that actually the brain detects almost immediately authentic learning versus inauthentic learning. So there's a study um, that was done on flying a plane versus getting into a simulator. And when they measured the brain, the uh, individual's uh, perception of that, it indicated that the individual thought that the simulator was also an authentic learning versus sitting in a lecture hall and learning about how to fly a plane. So why is that important? We need to help students make connections. Uh, that transfer is very important. Um, so uh, 
here's a, an example. Uh, um, in math class, uh, students were learning about how to convert um, uh, their decimals into fractions and or fractions into percentages. Um, anyway, they were doing the math teachers like, yeah, they got this down, that learning target, nailed it. Well, then they go into English class, and the teacher's like, all right, go ahead, you know, we'll look to exchange papers, now figure out your grade. And they're like, I don't know, I don't know what percent I got. She's like, yeah, you do? You learn this in math. Well, they didn't make that transfer, right? So what can we do to support students as they transfer what they're learning? Um, another example I thought of was the difference between um, being in a Spanish classroom where maybe it doesn't feel as authentic as going to Spain and living there and having, I, I had that experience. I, I remember when I was in college or eighth grade, I learned Spanish, but didn't really learn it really well. I think I, sorry, but I think I cheated on the, uh, the exam <laughs> just to get through it. Well, then by the time I go to college, my parents are like, uh, yeah, we're sending you to Spain to take care of those language requirements. And I'm like, okay, A, don't know where Spain is. I think it's, you know, in Europe somewhere. And B, uh, like, what did I know? The chicks wear red lipstick and red dresses and they dance nice or cool. Anyway, when I was immersed in that culture, that was authentic learning. And I learned in, I mean, it was like all your senses, right? Uh, and then I ended up teaching in the Dominican Republic. And then that language acquisition, because I was immersed in the culture, that's what I'm talking about, about authentic learning. All right, uh, let's see. So uh, the other piece, just to mention about authenticity, is helping students understand the application. Why is this important? Um, basically, students, um, if they don't feel like uh, their learning is authentic, if it's inauthentic, their brain goes on vacation. So it's important for us to uh, be able to articulate um, why their learning is important. And then hopefully we, can, we do know why it is. Sometimes it's not. All right, let's go to uh, the next slide. All right, I want you to think about something you've learned really well. And how did you learn that? Think about something you learned really, really well. How did you learn that? So I, um, I played the violin growing up and played in college. Um, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but apparently... I wasn't very good when I started, and my mom would always brag about, yeah, I sat lower down when uh, she was in fourth or fifth grade to help her hear, like, intonation, and um, anyway, over time, 
and practice and technique, I got better. But what I'm going to suggest is that there's this natural process of learning where you try something, you get feedback, and then you have to tweak or make adjustments, and then you try again. So basically the scientific method, right? Yep. Um, so if you could go to the next slide. Ehlers suggests that education doesn't allow this. That instead of going through that natural process of trying, tweaking, and then uh, or trial, error, tweaking, try again, um, he suggests that uh, schools just basically give kids one chance and slap a grade on it and suggest that there is, uh, that's, this is actually something he's really fired up about. Like he would even suggest that we take grades away entirely. He's in that camp. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with that. But um, naturally we make mistakes all the time, right? I mean, like I think about learning not only in a, like the intellectual learning content, but socially. Like uh, when our kids went to a new school, um, as a new parent, I was really intimidated by meeting the community. And so I had to like, kind of like, all right, do I put myself out there? How do I put myself out there? All right, this went well. That was good feedback. All right, maybe I gotta tweak it in that situation. But we make mistakes all the time and we figure it out. And then I wanna remind you about how I talked about learning being tied to emotion, right? Um, so what can we do about this? Let's go to the next slide. We have an opportunity uh, to reframe failure and utilize errors and mistakes as learning opportunities rather than penalties. That if that is natural, and that's, that's where I was telling you about my daughter that has a low self-efficacy. It's, it's so tied to that emotion that I can't convince her. I was, I was even like, no! The statistics, the, the, this score suggests that you read better than other kids. And she sees herself, saw herself as a failure and hangs on to that. So, what can we do? Um, low stakes failure in a safe environment. Also, the importance of good feedback. How important. Research suggests that when feedback is actionable and really good feedback, like constructive, that's one of the best ways that we learn. That's tied to um, Vygotsky's theory of social constructivism that claims when we work with someone that is at our higher skill level, like think about tutoring, that we benefit from that. And that feedback is going to help. Um, 
then the other, my last point with that is um, building self-efficacy. And so I've shared how important that is uh, personally to me. Um, but self-efficacy is the idea that if I approach a task, I'm confident that I will have a positive outcome. And I don't give up when I meet a challenge. So we have students that they shut down, right? They're like, can't do it. Can they persevere um, when they meet a challenge? So one of the differences, one of the main differences between a good reader or a strong reader and a struggling reader is that a strong reader knows what to do when they get in trouble. And that's it's kind of tied to self-efficacy, right? Like, I get stuck, but instead of giving up, I persevere. And I, like, I remember when I had to take my stats class in uh, my PhD program and math was my thing, and so I had a very low self-efficacy. But the more success I had, the more I was willing to put in the time to learn. Because I had, I believed that if I could work at it, I would have a good outcome. And maybe it wasn't the straight A, but I could learn it. So that's, that's very, very important. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to the next slide. And I want to go back to these five. Curiosity, sociality, emotion, authenticity, and failure. And I want you to think with people around you, one or two, however many people you want to talk to, about which two do you think are priorities for you right now? Go ahead and, and discuss.
element and why. I thought that one was important, maybe in your scenario or in today in education. Not specifically to one in particular, but we were talking about our perspective of what we feel is important versus putting ourselves in the mindset of the students and what we think they need the most. Um, so, just a challenge to put yourself in the mindset of the students, evaluate it from where, what's their perceived need, um, the socially and the emotionally seems to be a higher felt need from our students um, than we might automatically put on it very well. Well, and especially as we, um, we want our students to be empathetic, what an important reminder of um, being self-aware of our own empathy. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, go ahead. Um, failure was the one that I talked about. Um, but the weird thing is I feel like I do give opportunities. So I teach math, so I like all your <laughs> um, things with math. But I give plenty of opportunities for students to, and I teach middle school. So, All right. back to your thing. Yep, yep. Um, to learn from their mistakes and to like do quiz retakes and yep. all this stuff. Um, so like I'm giving them the chances to do it, but more and more I'm finding that kids are like okay with failing. Like they're just okay. Like I'm just gonna fail. Like I'm not gonna do the retake. I'm not going to redo this assignment. And so like that's the hard part I'm struggling is like how do I get them to get that shift out of their mind? Being yeah. like, instead of, because I don't think it's okay for them to fail, <laughs> but I also can't like force them to go home and study and review it because they're yeah. not going to. All right, excellent point. We're struggling with that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, they're like, oh, I'll just get a D. Yeah. I'm not going to retake it. There's almost a pride in it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. there's a pride in failing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm fine with <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't, I don't have an answer, but what, or, what, what I wonder is what are our, what are our students' emotional attachments to letter grades today? Yeah, that, yeah. So then, what? How do we define failure? They may define it differently yeah. because just they're like, eh, whatever, you know. Which is like, okay. So then it goes back to well, then how do we make this content important to them? So that they are engaged, yeah. and that that is a challenge. Thank you for sharing that. Anything else? All right, next slide. Oh, did you, yeah, I, I go. think going along with that, like um, we were talking about curiosity, and I just I remember as a student, like there was one class in particular, like I just didn't like it, and it bored me to death. And I remember my dad saying to me, like, you should go into that class with the mindset of, like, learning one new thing every time you go, even if it doesn't have to do with what they're saying. Yeah. And that, like, changed my whole perspective on that class. I think it, like, engaged the curiosity in me. I bet. Um, but, like, going along with, like, I think it gave me more care or concern about how I was doing the class. Because, like, I had an investment in it. Yeah, certainly. Interesting. And, and interesting to me that your um, dad, I mean, that's pretty wise, a wise suggestion, you know, and, and it also makes me wonder if then we can approach students 
like that, that perhaps have that aptitude. That's one thing. But what's also interesting about that is that when we go, when we come at learning, going into a classroom setting, sometimes with that mentality or that mindfulness, we recognize that our learning sometimes isn't about learning the content. Like for me, it was, all right, what does this teacher need for me to get the A? I learned how to figure that out. And it, did it make me an A student? Maybe I'm paper. But it was just like, yeah, you got to figure that out. Yeah. But that's learning. Still learning. Okay, let's go to the next slide. I want to... Um, I want to uh, just provide some final thoughts in closure. Thank you. Um, going back to Madeline Hunter, part of good lesson design is ending in closure. It's not something I feel very strong in, so I'm forcing myself to do that. All right, so uh, the environment, how I just want to emphasize how important it is to create a community, a safe environment for students to take risks, uh, establishing safety. What is your role in um, making students feel safe or the sense of belonging that what you contribute matters? Um, considering the person, the, the whole child, promoting that curiosity, building trust that ties with that emotional piece. Do they trust you? Do you have the pedagogy of care? And then I, I want to just emphasize again how uh, teaching is a high calling. Um, as you know, there's a shortage of teachers across the state in Michigan. Um, and also there's been a significant decline in the number of people that go into teaching. So the pre-service teachers, students that we have, going into teaching has declined. Um, I, I feel that it's an honor to be able to teach at a Christian university because teaching is not a job, it's a calling. And uh, we really need to find um, those who are called because when we're called, then that's where God wants us to be. And especially as Christian educators, we can make such an impact for Christ in the classroom. All right, um, we've got four minutes. Let's uh, let me show you this last quote, please. This is just a summary uh, quote from Josh Eiler. He says, "Teaching and learning are human activities. Human beings have big questions, real feelings, complicated relationships, a hunger for what's real, and genuine limitations, all of which factor into our learning." All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time.